All right, good morning, everyone. Um, Pastor Dave is um, working on our stuff for apologetics, uh, courses that are starting in January. He will be back up here next week. Uh, today, you guys get me, so sorry. Uh, real quick, show of hands, is anyone already done with their Christmas shopping? Anyone done? You guys are sick, all right? <laughs> haven't even started, haven't even written out our list. Is anyone, don't be ashamed, is anyone going to re-gift something that they ha- already have at their house? It's all right. That's good stewardship. Don't be ashamed of that. That's fine. I love Christmas time. I absolutely love Christmas time. I, um, something has happened to me over the years uh, because I used to despise Christmas music. Um, I used to actively ask if it's possible for us to not do Christmas songs on stage just because it's Christmas. And for something, something's changed. Like I started playing, I wrote it down. I played my first Christmas song on October 13th of this year, right? Something has changed in me. My wife and I went out and got our Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving. That thing is already a fire hazard, but we're going to try our hardest to keep it until Christmas, right? Something has changed. I love, I love this season. I love this season. I love the fact that all is merry, all is bright, that we have all these things going on, that people are actually intentionally nice during this part of the season. I absolutely love that. Everything is extravagant. Everything's a little bit better. But for some of us, quite honestly, Christmas season is stressful. It's dysfunctional. We're, we're knowing that the things we're going to buy in December, the bills for them are coming in January. And we're not looking forward to that, right? Some of us are going to have to go to our to extended family, our family's house, and we're going to run into co- cousin so-and-so who already always has a little bit too much to drink and a little bit too much to say, and we know we're going to be around that person and we're not really looking forward to it. But yet, the Bible tells us in this season, Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace. Let's put the verse up here. This verse was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and this is what, what was prophetically said about it. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Growing up, my mom made me go, well, made. My mom took me to church all the time, (laughs) all the time. And I, as a kid, I would sleep through most services. I'll be honest with you. I would sleep through most of the services. But around Christmas time, I really loved it because we did all these great things at, at the church. Now, we had this thing called the Hanging of the Greens, which is weird because my name's Terrence Green, and it always made me nervous going to the Hanging of the Greens, but we're going to get past that, right? So we went to this thing where we would decorate the entire church. We put up the tree. We put the ornaments on. We would, um, we would do, have communion. We would do feet washing. We would have, it would basically, it's just this huge time for all of us to, stay, to be together, and it was amazing, and it was peaceful. And then at some point, I got older, and I started getting more stressed, and I kept wondering, why is it that the peace I experience in church, the peace I experience in my life at Christmas time isn't there the rest of the year. If Jesus really is this Prince of Peace, now remember, we are given a nine pound, six ounce baby Jesus at Christmas time who grows up to be a man who lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death on the cross, and raises again for our sins. He is the Prince of Peace from beginning to end. So why in the world am I not experiencing that peace January through November. Well, when I started looking at it, I started looking at even Jesus' life, and 
it didn't start out very peaceful for him. Think about this. You have a teenage girl who is told, you're going to get pregnant, but it's going to be God's baby. Like, okay, that doesn't sound very peaceful to me. She then has to go to her fiance and say, look, honey, I'm pregnant. Don't worry, it's God's. It sounds like Jerry Springer more than anything else at this point, right? (laughs) Not very peaceful. Then you have this girl who gets nine months pregnant and has to go across the country on donkey. Now, my wife and I went to the hospital to have our first baby in a convertible, and that wasn't comfortable. Imagine going to Kaiserwanda Creek on a donkey to have a baby. Not comfortable, not peaceful. Don't forget where they were going. They were going to the city of Joseph's ancestors. Joseph probably had relatives in the city. Let me ask you, why didn't he just stay with them? Hey, Uncle Joe, you know, me and Mary, we have to come there for the census. Uh, Can you please clear out a room? She's very pregnant. Make sure it's a nice, comfortable bed. Why didn't they stay with with an uncle or a cousin or a friend that Joseph grew up with? You know why? Because most of his family in that town probably disowned him because of the miracle baby. You're pregnant by God? Come on, dude. Really? Not peaceful. They get there and they have a baby in a barn. And now I know when we, when, when we had our kids, we, I say when we had our kids, I didn't do any of the hard work. When my wife had our kids, all we wanted to do was just get some rest. But everyone that knew us, everyone that loved us came to visit us. Imagine if strangers just started showing up. Hey, here, there's a baby here. What's going on? That's what Mary was going, going through. Why are there shepherds here all of a sudden? Magi, what in the world is going This is what she's going through. Not peaceful at all. They quickly find out that Herod is having all of the baby boys in the entire area murdered, and they have to flee to Egypt. Not peaceful at all. The Prince of Peace in a situation that is not peaceful at all. So where is the peace? You fast forward, and you look at the, not want to say the world, you look at the church. The church at this one and the church as a whole, and you have people who have completely dysfunctional marriages, and I'm like, He knows Jesus, and she knows Jesus, and they're messed up together, and what is going on? You look at the the racial and and the climate that we have in this country right now. You turn on the TV, and you're hearing about mass shooting after mass shooting, and it is impossible for us to find just a little bit of peace, and yet we're told that Jesus is still our Prince of Peace, and I can't marry the two. I'm trying to figure out what this means, and what I've realized is Peace is not the thing that's just going to remove my anxiety. Peace is not just the thing that's going to calm me down when I'm disturbed. It's more than that. That phrase, Prince of Peace, actually means Sar Shalom. Sar Shalom. That word Sar means someone that is in charge. It means your captain. It means he's your lord, your chief, your general. The Romans took the word Sar changed to czar and changed it to Caesar, the person in charge. Shalom is rest. It's tranquility, it's wholeness, it's completeness. Jesus is the captain of rest. He is the Lord of tranquility. He is the chief of contentment. And as long as we are under the lordship of Jesus, we can have peace. 
Because in God's kingdom, both future and present, peace rules. And I've got to tell you that regardless of what you see in this world, church, our Prince of Peace has come. He has come and he is here. And he brings us three gifts. The first gift is peace with God. Peace with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. You see, before Jesus, if you lied, if you cheated, if you stole, you were immediately guilty. But Jesus came to completely change the world. He came to turn everything upside down, and he brought in this thing called grace. And within grace, you are forgiven. Even though you are guilty, you're made right. Now, I remember my mom, I don't know if she's still in here or not, but she heard it last service, so it's fine, all right? I loved going to youth camp in my teen years. I loved going, but I'll be honest with you, I went for the girls. It is what it is. (laughs) I went for the girls. My mom paid good money for me to go and hang out with girls, all right? But inevitably, inevitably, the first night, you sit there with all your friends, and the pastor would just start into this sermon. And he starts talking about all the things that you have done wrong over the course of the year. And he made me feel guilty and horrible. And I would go down to the altar, and I would ask Jesus into my heart. Then the next day, same thing. And for the entire week, every night, I'm going down there, and I'm asking Jesus into my heart. Here's the problem. I got saved when I was six. I didn't need to do that. I'm letting you know right now, don't you ever doubt your faith and your salvation. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in. You're in. Do not waver in that. Do not doubt that. You are in. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You're in. You have peace with God. God has made you righteous because of what Jesus has done, not because of you. You can never work enough to get it. You can never be good enough to get it, but Jesus himself has made you righteous because of his blood on that cross. You have peace with God. The next thing is peace of God. Peace of God. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And here's the kicker. Then, after you do that, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This peace of God is something that when you're in the middle of a storm, when your world is crumbling, you can stand firm because you know you have God. You have this, when you see people where you're like, how in the world are they not done with life? With everything that we see going on with them, how are they not done? How are they not checked out? It's because of this peace of God. But at the same time, the peace of God is a barometer of where you are with God. I heard this story about, about this guy. He saved up his money um, as a, a young man, as a teenager, and he bought this car with, you guys remember bench seats? I'm a little bit too young for this, but you guys remember bench seats? Okay. He bought a car with bench seats and he immediately got in the car and drove over to his girlfriend's house. She got in, he sat down, one hand on the steering wheel, one hand on the chair, and she scooted up as close as possible to him and he put his arm around her and they just drove her around. Now, over the years, the girlfriend became the wife, and the kids were added. They bought a house. 
And all of these things that stress marriages and stress, stress you out in life, God added on. But the one thing that remained is that every week, he and his wife would get in that car and go for a drive. Now, eventually, eventually the wife on one of their drives, the wife looks over and says, honey, what happened? What happened to us? And the husband being a guy is like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? (laughs) And she's like, just look at us. When you first got this, we were so in love that all I could do was sit as close to you as possible. You put your arm around me and we go for a drive. Look at us. You're over there driving right now. And I'm on the other side of the car, right up against the passenger door. Sweetheart, what happened? And the husband stops for a second. And he's sitting there with his hand on the steering wheel, his arm on the chair, and looks at her and goes, Honey, I haven't moved. How close do you feel with God right now? Compare that to a year ago. You feel closer or further away? How's your prayer life right now? How are you doing with being sure that in the middle of things, things are going to be okay? How's your anxiety? How's your stress level? I'm telling you right now that if you don't feel as close to God now as you did back then, who moved? God is right there, right there, arms open, waiting for you. But I'm telling you, if you want to truly experience this peace of God, you got to get back to what you used to do. I love the way Revelation, this is, the, rest of the, the rest of the service didn't hear this. You, you guys get this one for free, right? I love the way Reve, Revelation says it. Return to your first love. Remember what you used to do. Remember what you used to yearn for. Remember when you used to walk into a church and you were just chomping at the bit to hear God's word because you knew how transformational it is. And if you've gotten to the point where that's not you anymore, I'm telling you, return to your first love. The last thing is peace with others. Peace with others. Do all you can do to live in peace with everyone. Let's put the picture up there. This is my all-time favorite picture of Jesus for a couple reasons. Number one, I can say this. I don't think Fossil could say this, but I can say this. It's the complexion. Like, you guys know Jesus wasn't blonde, right? Like, he wasn't a blonde guy with blue eyes walking around the desert, right? We have, like, historical data telling us that. It's called the Bible, and it's called his first miracle. Now, think about it. Think about it. If you are a pale, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy walking around the desert, your first miracle would not be turning water into wine. It'd be turning water into sunscreen, probably, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad y'all are still with me. I will say this, though. You know why I love this picture? It reminds me that even Jesus was able to find peace in the middle of trials. Jesus' life is fascinating. When you read through the Gospels and you read his life, it is fascinating what Jesus did here on this earth. But don't for a second think his life was easy. He was at at a place where every time he would go to teach, he had the religious leaders of the day trying to trip him up and ultimately trying to kill him. He was at a place where his 12 closest people were constantly doubting him, and he had to keep saying, yeah, I'm Jesus. Do you guys not know who I am? Do you guys not remember what I have done? He was at a place where one of his closest friends betrayed him. 
He was a guy that every time he would go to teach, 5,000 people would show up, and for some reason, none of them ate and would expect him to feed them. <laughs> Jesus dealt with tension every day, and yet when you read the gospel, you get this sense that he had this peace and his, this joy in his life. And I've got to tell you, I understand, I understand that things are difficult. I understand that it's hard to find peace. I understand that your in-laws are crazy. I know. I got crazy in-laws myself. I understand that. But at some point, you have to be able to find peace in the middle of. We got to be willing to find peace, but we also got to give peace as well. There's a quote by Mahatma Gandhi, and it says, it's a first-class human tragedy that people of the earth who claim to believe in the message of Jesus whom they describe as the Prince of Peace, show little of that belief in actual practice. People, it's our job. It's our job to take this peace to the world that desperately needs it. God calls us to be peacemakers. Choose making peace over keeping the peace. Choose making peace over keeping the peace. Now, I know this is difficult, and this is countercultural, because for a lot of us, we look at life and we're basically saying, you know what, that's out of bounds. I'm not going to talk about that. And you don't talk about this and we're going to be okay. We're just basically going to pretend like the elephant isn't in the room. But God calls us for more. When Jesus t- says in the Beatitudes for us to be, that uh, says, blessed are the peacemakers, it's completely radical because at the time they're living in a place where if someone hit you, you hit them back. If someone stole from you, you stole back from them. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no that's over now. You turn the other cheek. You're intentional about making peace, even with those people you think it's impossible to make peace with. A lot of us, you know what? You guys are getting a lot of stuff for free, all right? A lot of us in our minds have made truces with people where we have, we're like, you know what? There's this big, ugly thing festering between us, and we are not going to talk about it at all. And I've got to ask you, at what point are you going to stop being okay with things not being okay? At what point are you going to say, you know what? I'm calling myself a Christian. I'm not acting like it. I'm calling myself someone who truly believes that Jesus is this loving God. And yet I'm not showing that same love to people. We have relationships that are completely fractured. We have people this holiday season that we call brother or sister or mom and dad that we won't even talk to. And I'm telling you, Jesus does not call us to live that way. He does not call us to just step back and say, you know what? It is what it is. They're going to be who they are. I'm going to be who I am. He does not call us to do that. He calls us to be intentional about making peace in our families because family's worth it, right? Isn't family worth it? We got to make peace and be intentional about it. And you know what? They might burn you again. They might do the same thing to you again. And you know what you do? You make peace again. There's a story about this kid, this eight-year-old boy from Waterford, Connecticut, who saved his sister's life. Zachary saved his six-year-old sister, Megan, when she started choking on a piece of hard candy. Zachary noticed Megan wasn't breathing, and he gave her the Heimlich maneuver, which he had learned on TV. But Zachary and his sister weren't getting along too well when the reporter came to do an article on the rescue. The headline in the paper said, Waterford Boy, 8, Saved Sister's Life. But the secondary headline underneath quoted Zachary saying, I wouldn't do it again. 
She's been a pain this week. Let me ask you, anyone in your life been a pain this week? Amen. Anybody in your life pushing your buttons on purpose? Anybody in your life a little bit too dysfunctional to be around all the time? Don't look at them, all right? (laughs) Jesus calls you to make peace with them too. Intentionally. Not just hope it happens, but be intentional about making it happen. This is how you do it. Number one, tell the truth in love. Tell the truth in love. Ephesians says we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ. Now notice, I didn't say yell the truth in love. Tell the truth in love. Now, you've got to be very smart about this. Because a lot of people are like, I don't know why she's mad at me. She asked me how her dress looks. I said it made her look fat, and now she's mad at me. Got to be careful about what you say. Got to be careful about when you say it. Number one, wait until a non-conflict time to say it. So if you're in the middle of a fight and someone's throwing a shoe at you, don't bring up another issue right then. Wait, right? Wait until a non-conflict time. Number two, make sure you attack the problem and not the person. We have a tendency to be like, you are always, and you're this, and you're that, where there's a bigger issue than that. There's another issue that we need to focus on. About nine, ten years ago, um, I was was working with the youth group here. And before youth group, we we always have this huddle. And what we do is we try to talk about everything that's going on at the night with the leaders, make sure the leaders are all on the same page, they have small group questions, everything, before we go in there into the madness that's youth group, right? So my wife... God bless her. My wife has a tendency to um, talk at times where she shouldn't be talking. Like, it's hard for me to sit by her in church because I'm I'm like, baby, you're talking to me and I'm trying to become more like Jesus. Will you pay attention? What's going on? So um, she has a tendency to talk at times where she shouldn't be talking. And and I'm trying to take our leaders through what's going on. And Becca's talking to, to one of her friends over here about something. And I say, Becca... I really need you to be quiet right now because what we're doing is more important than what you're saying to them. And then I get back to it and I keep, I keep going. Now, as soon as I said it, I had this little thing in the back of my head that I was like, you're about to sleep on the couch tonight, right? (laughs) But let me tell you what happened. Nothing, nothing. She didn't say anything then. We did youth group. We went out to in and out after church, went home, Got to sleep in the bed. I woke up. (laughs) And I went to church the next day. About three or four days later, I finished cooking dinner. I bring it to the table. This is before we had kids. We could actually talk to each other. And um, I bring it to the table, and and Becca's like, hey, Terrence, do you remember what happened at youth group a few days ago? And I'm like, yes, that kid we've been praying for finally accepted Jesus, and they're, they're, the leadership quality, they're going to be lo- world changers. This is amazing. It's like, no, 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 not that. So I'm like, okay. What happened? I don't remember. And she goes, before youth group, we were all in a huddle, and you basically belittled me in front of everybody. And I want you to know that when you do that, you make me feel like I'm not valuable. Now, what would have happened if when I told her to be quiet, she came right back at me right there. You shut up, Terrence. Me being a smart husband. Yes, ma'am. All right. 
it would have been volatile. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. It's not the right way. What she did, she waited for us to be in a good place. She waited for us to be alone and not in front of a lot of people. And she let me know how what I did affected her. She did not attack me as a person. She attacked the issue. In fact, she started out really flowery. She's like, Terrence, you're so good looking. And this and that, her words, not mine, right? You're so good looking and you do so many great things. And then she went into what the issue was. And I'm telling you, I appreciated it. And some of us right now are wondering why is it that we're having the same issues with the same people every single time we try to tell them what they need to hear. And I'm saying maybe it's your fault. Maybe you need to take a step back, reevaluate what you're saying, how you're saying it, and when you're saying, saying it, and say it in a way that's a lot more constructive. So I, I put a, a, together a couple of things you guys can start saying. So instead of saying that you are always or you always do this kind of statement, say this. How about this? When you don't listen to me, I don't feel valued. When you raise your voice, the kids and I don't feel safe. When you're constantly checking your phone, I don't feel like I'm important. Attack the issue, don't attack the person. Number two, repent when you are wrong. Repent when you're wrong. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Could you imagine what our lives would look like, what our relationships would look like if when we're wrong, we actually go back to people and say, hey, I'm wrong and I'm sorry for what I did and I'm wrong. But for a lot of us, we, I don't know, maybe, we think, maybe we're just egotistical. Maybe we just don't think that we make that many mistakes, but y'all messed up. All you guys are messed up and I'm messed up and relationships we have are messed up and some of it's our fault. And at some point we're just thinking, well, I know if I did something wrong, there's no if. If you really look at these dysfunctional relationships that you have, these issues that you have, at some point, sin crept in, and some of the sin was your sin. And at some point, you need to go back to them and repent and say, you know what? I am so sorry. And, you're, and notice, I didn't say apologize when you're wrong, because a lot of us apologize. You know, I'm really sorry I was looking at the stuff that I shouldn't have been looking at, but if you're meeting my needs, then I wouldn't have. That's pathetic. That's pathetic. I'm really sorry you got your feelings hurt, but you need to learn to not be so sensitive. No. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, what I did hurt you. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I will try to be better. No, I'm sorry is for mistakes. I'm sorry I broke the lamp. Will you forgive me is for sin. It's trying to make things right. But a lot of us just stop at remorse. There's a story told about a man who... uh, owed thousands and thousands of dollars of back taxes. And so he sent a check to the IRS, and with it he attached a note. And the note said, I am so sorry that I have not paid taxes for years. Here's some money to cover it. And then he said, if I don't feel better from giving you that money, eventually I'll give you the rest of the money that I owe you. Here's the problem. A lot of us have said, "Ah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you don't like what happened. I'm sorry. You owe a lot more than that. You owe a... What I did was wrong. What I did was hurtful. What I did damaged the foundation of our marriage. It damaged trust. Will you please forgive me? I will try to be better. 
in the future. Here's the last thing. Forgive and let go. Forgive and let it go. Pastor Dave would sing the Frozen song right now. I'm not going to sing Let It Go. Not going to happen, all right? Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive one and, uh, anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I've got to be very careful with this one. Because when I say I want you to tell the truth in love, a lot of people are like, yeah, I, I get it. I'm with you 100%. When I say that you need to repent and apologize for the things you've done, I get it. And when I say the word forgive, like, nope. You see, Terrence, it's very easy for you to put a sermon together about what you think needs to happen, but you don't understand what happened. My spouse betrayed me. Over and over and over again. And you're asking me to forgive that person for what they did? Absolutely not. Terrence, I, I grew up in a really dysfunctional family, and I had a family member that I was supposed to be able to trust. And instead of them protecting me, they abused me. And you're trying to tell me right now I need to forgive them for what they did? There's no way. Church, I got to tell you, I may not have been through what you've been through. I understand. I'm not trying to minimize the pain you've been through in any way, shape, or form. What happened was wrong, but I can tell you right now that though forgiveness isn't easy, through the blood of a risen Christ, it is doable. It is doable. We need to learn to forgive and let it go. About nine years ago or so, I preached a sermon back when we were at the gym. It was a long time ago. I preached a sermon about raising godly kids in dysfunctional families. Now, nine years ago, nine years ago, I didn't have any kids. And so nine years ago, Terrence thought he knew what he was talking about. Nine years ago, Terrence didn't know what he was talking about at all, all right? I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old now, and I've learned that when you go from zero to one, you become a parent. When you go from one kid to two kids, you become a referee. And when you go from two kids to three kids, you become a bouncer, right? So I completely understand that now. So for anyone that heard that sermon, I'm sorry. Don't listen to me. I was wrong, okay? But in that sermon, I used this analogy of an angel and a devil, and the angel was my mom. My mom is an amazing woman, crazy feisty, but an amazing woman, right? She is the person who helped me become who I am today. From the emphasis that she put not only on church, but on an actual relationship with God, she helped me become who I am today. And my mom was the angel. And on, my other, on the other side, I had the devil. And the devil was my dad. Now, hear me out. I've grown up from, since then, all right? My dad, it wasn't until probably two or three years before he passed that my dad finally got to the point where he entered into a relationship with Jesus, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. But my dad was the king of the grudge back when I was growing up. Uh, my, my mom and dad both were married before in very, very dysfunctional situations. Then they got together and made perfection, right? So um, my, my dad, I still to this day do not know my dad's first wife's name. I only know her as Godzilla. That's the only name I've ever heard, right? And my dad was the, was the king of, of holding a grudge. My dad at times would needle me about my faith and, oh, you're doing this, and you call yourself a Christian, and all of that, right? 
And I remember in that sermon with my dad being the devil, I remember saying out loud, not even a devil in the house could have kept me away from God. Now I said that, but what I said about him was completely hurtful and completely disrespectful. Now, my dad didn't bring it up to me right then. It was about three or four, maybe five years later, and he's at our house, at my house, and he's helping me with the air conditioner because I don't know how to work on anything. Uh, so he was over there helping me, and um, apparently that was the time where he needed to say something. He said, hey, Terrence, um, do you remember when you preached a sermon and you, you basically called me a devil? And he said that, and my heart sunk, and I'm like, <gasps> okay, so... In my mind, I'm like, okay, how do I justify what I said? Dad, it was just an analogy in a sermon. Don't worry about it. Well, Dad, compared to Mom, you re- no, I can't say that. Um, and so I just said, Dad, I am so sorry. Can you ever forgive? And before I even got the words out, he said, son, I want you to know that I forgive you. But I also want, to know, want you to know that I'm forgiving you because of how much you've forgiven me for. And I'm taking a step. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, Terrence, you don't have any idea without you even knowing it, how much you've forgiven me for over the years. You know, I used to be an angry man, an absolutely angry man, and the way that I would speak to you at times was wrong. And I, and I never even came to you for an apology, but I could tell by the way you're treating me that you are already forgiving me. Terrence, I, I, should, have been, I, I should have been more involved with and more supportive of what you're trying to do with the church. And then he said something which was the key to letting me know where he was in his journey with God. And he goes, you've forgiven me, but God has forgiven me. And so I forgive you. I'm letting you know right now, when Colossians says, remember the Lord forgave you, so you must, it is a command. You must forgive. There's no choice. There's no, I don't want to. You must forgive and you must let it go because God is trying desperately, I mean desperately, to bring some peace to your family, but it starts with you. I'm going to call the band up, um, but I want to let you guys know something. I love pizza. (laughs) Is what it is. I love pizza. I don't eat it as much now as I used to, but I love pizza and my favorite pizza is a pepperoni and cheese with extra pepperoni and extra sauce. Love it. Favorite pizza in the world. So what would happen if this afternoon I go home, I call Roundtable, that's my drug of choice, I call, I call Roundtable, <laughs> and, and I order my pizza, and I wait the 45 minutes to three hours for it to show up, right? <laughs> and when they get there, when the pizza guy gets there, he rings the door, I open the door, and homeboy is standing there with the pizza just in his hand. Here you go. And the crust is flopping over and the sauce is running down his hands. And I'm like, dude, what are you? Number one, did you wash your hands? Because I'm really hungry. I might still eat it anyway, right? (laughs) Number two is, where's the box? Where is the box? Because I expected the product to come in a vessel. Where is the box? Now this box, this box is not expensive. It's 39 cents. I had, in fact, I walked into Roundtable this week and asked for one and they just handed it to me. This box is not expensive. But 
when the product is in the box, the box becomes extremely valuable. Now, it's not the box that gives value to the product. It's the product that gives value to the box. Some of us right now are completely on board with God bringing peace into our family this Christmas season. We're completely on board with it. And we're praying for God to bring it in a mighty way. And he's like, dude, you're the box. I'm going to bring it through you. But we won't do it. We won't do it because for some reason, maybe we think God can't use us. I've got to tell you, you've got to be two things in order for God to use you. Number one, you've got to be empty. Now, for some reason, when God starts doing things in our lives and starts using us to, to help change the world, we get kind of puffed up and look at us. And God's like, look, it's not about you. You're just the box. It's about the product inside of you that is making the difference in the world. It's not about you. The other thing was like, you know what? We, I can't. I can't preach a sermon. I, I, I can't do music. I can't do these things. I can't do these things that God wants me to do. And God is saying, you know what? You can. You just need to empty yourself and allow me to put the product in you. You know what the other thing is? Is you got to be clean. Can you imagine if you ordered a pizza from Round Table and it came and it had crusted on cheese and anchovies and olive bits from the last person's pizza because they're just reusing the box? That'd be nasty, right? Some of us right now are asking God to put his peace in us. Yet we have crusted on cheese and the crusted on cheese are the words that were said to us when we were a kid. The remnants that we still have are the things that our parents did to us. The things we still have are what we think is going to happen with our brother or sister this Christmas. And God is saying, you know what? I want to use you, but you got to clean yourself up. You can't go into the situation thinking that things are always going to be dysfunctional because they always have. You can't go into the situation saying, I want to reuse this. I want you to be clean and new, and I want you to be empty, and I want to give you my peace so that you can deliver it to a family, to a world that desperately needs it. That is what he wants from you this year. And I got to tell you, you are plan A, and there's no plan B. God wants to use you, but I got to ask you, if not you, then who? Who's going to do it? God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for your word. God, it's absolutely amazing to me to think that you entrust us with something as valuable as your peace. That you ask us to be people who are intentionally going into a world, yes, but also into family functions where there is disorder, where there is dysfunction, and you ask us to bring a little bit of peace. You ask us to be Jesus with skin on for those people. So God, I I pray for us today, Lord. I pray that you help us be people who don't yell the truth, but we tell the truth in love. Help us be people who, when we are wrong, we repent and make things right. God, I pray that you help us be people who forgive and just let it go. We don't hold it against people. We don't hope that they get their comeuppance. We just let it go. God, help us be clean. Help us be people who are not holding on to the past sins of people. 
Help us be empty people who are not trying to do this on our own power, but people who are literally filled with your spirit. Help us be people who make a difference this holiday season, Lord, because our families need it. God, we thank you and we thank you for what you can do, Lord, but we thank you even more for what you will do. In your son's name, amen.